Good morning. My name is Stephanie, and I'm a member here at Redemption. And I'll be reading this uh, passage to you this morning. It's in Colossians chapter 2, 1 through 3, and you can find it on page 983 in the Pew Bibles. <clears throat> and each week during this series in Proverbs, we've been reading this very passage before the sermon. And it serves as a profound reminder to us that God's wisdom, true wisdom, only exists in Christ. Please join me in reading Colossians 2, 1 through 3. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches a full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Stephanie. Good morning again, church. Let's pray as we look to God's word. Father, this is one of these sermons, topics you, you tremble to speak about. <laughs> There's so much uh, folly in the world, in the way we engage in society, particularly these past few years. Uh, so many ways it seems to swing and miss um, on this topic. I pray I wouldn't. pray that you'd uh, humble me, help me. To, to be faithful in preaching your word. And but more than that, God, we pray that through the whole process and experience that you would give us a glimpse and insight into your eternal wisdom. Uh, help us to live lives that are truly marked by the grace of the gospel and, and help us to live and, and to look in, in distinct ways in the world, in ways that honor you, in ways that build up your body, in ways that serve and love our neighbors, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist from the NYU Stern School of Business. Uh, he's not a Christian, uh, but he does have some very insightful things to say, particularly about public life these days. Uh, earlier this year, he published an Atlantic article that I think deserves some attention. Um, is called, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. Uh, told you, you got my attention at least. Uh, and in this article, he attributes much of the chaos and instability that we've seen these previous years to social media. It's really interesting. He traces the history and the evolution of social media, including a few changes that took place around 2010, 12, uh, which he argues at least led to much of the polarizing and outrage-inducing effects that we often see on social media in particular. And, and believe it or not, at least in his estimation, it has a lot to do with the like button. <laughs> and the retweet feature. Here's what, here's what Jonathan Haidt says. He says, shortly after its like button began to produce data about what best engaged its users, Facebook developed algorithms to bring each user the content most likely to generate a like or some other interaction. Later research showed that posts that trigger emotions, especially anger at outgroups, or the, the other team, basically, are most likely to be shared. In other words, they kind of incentivized our foolishness and outrage. 
Um, by 2013, he writes, social media had become a new game with dynamics unlike those of 2008. Uh, if you were skilled or lucky, you might create a post that would go viral and make you internet famous for a few days. Uh, if you blundered, you could find yourself buried in hateful comments. And this new game encouraged dishonesty and mob dynamics. He continues, one of the engineers at Twitter who had worked on the retweet button later revealed that he regretted his contribution because it made Twitter a nastier place. Uh, as he watched Twitter mobs forming through the use of the new tool, he thought to himself, we might have just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon. Uh, this is a fairly apt mental image of our public life. Uh, it's not necessarily one of wisdom, we know, uh, but rather more like one of a, of a four-year-old running around with a loaded weapon. Uh, we have seen, in all seriousness, riots in the streets, an attack on our nation's capital, uh, one scandal after another, PTA meetings riddled with conflict, and Disney, like Mickey Mouse Disney, is now taking strong political stands. Meanwhile, I think we're all just trying to figure out how to get by <laughs> with all these new tensions. Is it okay with me to disagree with this friend on that issue, or should I just leave it alone? Uh, should I just avoid my neighbor with these obnoxious yard signs? Uh, can I even voice that opinion online or, or even out loud at, at a coffee shop, right? How are we supposed to live out our lives in the broader society? At first, I plan to title today's sermon, God's Wisdom for Society. But the more studying I did, the more it became clear these proverbs are really more about individuals engaging in society. Uh, in other words, uh, this is not God's wisdom for entire societies or how societies should work. There may be some relevant uh, takeaways here. We may discuss that in part, but this is far more so a sermon on God's wisdom for how to be part of a society. Hence the new title, God's wisdom for our public Life And there's quite a bit to be said here in the Proverbs on the topic. Most of us probably take for granted the fact that the book of Proverbs was written to and for a specific society. Namely, it was written uh, for the nation of Israel. It was intended to guide their life together. Uh, it's easy to forget this because most of the Proverbs do address the individual and how he or she should live, but there are quite a few Proverbs that also speak to the collective public life of Israel as well, uh, including, for instance, Proverbs about the king, um, the rich and the poor, and how to treat your neighbor. And so today, uh, we will consider all that the proverb has to say about life together in society uh, and as we do, I think we're going to see that they really give us some specific instructions for how to approach three different categories of people within society. In particular, we will consider how to approach our leaders, how to approach the poor, and how to approach our neighbors. Okay? First, we should approach our leaders with genuine respect. Genuine respect. Right away, here we go, right? It's not hard to see. We often miss the mark on this one, right? It's going to be a long morning, you guys. It's going to be long. Well, I'm just kidding. But every society is led in large part either by an individual like a king or, or more likely today some sort of a council or senate or government branch. And in the Proverbs, one mark of wisdom in public life is that we genuinely respect those who lead us in this way. As common as it may be today, it is also incredibly foolish to just default disrespect them. Now, 
I want to anticipate an objection here um, that may prevent some of us from hearing what the Proverbs are about to say. And that is, well, sure, maybe so. But should we really respect wicked leaders, terrible, evil leaders? And depending on your political leanings, you may point to Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Ron Johnson in our society and say, well, look at these men. Well, they are immoral. They're deceptive. We surely can't respect them. Or you may point instead to President Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Tony Evers and say the very same thing over and over again, back and forth. This is part of the problem, I think. Uh, and I think we will see it is a kind of foolishness unto itself. Uh, but to start, I will point out, yes, that it is wise certainly to show a unique kind of respect to particularly good, just, and wise leaders. Uh, we should certainly hope for these leaders to the extent that we can be a part of appointing them. Wise leaders who lead with integrity are absolutely a tremendous blessing to a society. Uh, Proverbs 29.14 says, If a king faithfully judges the poor, if he is good to those who are lowly and downcast, his throne will be established forever. This is obviously it's not hard to respect these kinds of leaders that we feel this way about. Uh, but there is also a kind of respect that we should pay even to leaders we don't necessarily admire. Uh, now absolutely, there is plenty said in Proverbs about sinful, corrupt leaders. Absolutely, our respect for leaders should be, to some extent, in proportion to how respectable they are. That may be so. But listen very carefully. Fools always mock their leaders. Always. They can only ever see folly in a king. And there are plenty of these fools around today with, frankly, no respect for anyone they disagree with. And meanwhile, in chapter 24 of Proverbs, verses 21 to 22, here's what it says. It says, My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. This is a timely word for us today. How common is it for people to reflect back on, on the Trump presidency, for instance, to say, he, he was not my president. Oh, what a terrible, wicked guy. Or even now to say, oh, Biden, that election was stolen. He, he's not my president these days. Fear the Lord and the king and do not join with those who do otherwise. And here's why. Listen carefully. For disaster will arise suddenly from them, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. It helps, I think, to remember that in context here, Israel had some pretty terrible kings. I mean, really bad. It also helps in First Peter to see that we're told, honor, this is the New Testament, post-Christ, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. It says, honor the emperor. I want to remind us that by the emperor, Peter is almost certainly talking about Caesar. This is the pagan king of Rome who claimed to be a god and also presided over the brutal crucifixion of some criminals and occasionally, you know, the sinless God-man as well, just to make a point. So listen, we should be very, very slow to write off our public leaders with smug indignation. We are told in the Proverbs, it's wise to fear the king. We are commanded in the New Testament to honor even Caesar. Should we always embrace everything a king says and does? No. Are wise leaders incredibly hard to find? Absolutely. 
But it is also incredibly foolish to speak and act as if every public leader we dislike is just a fool. And as an aside, uh, this is actually true of present-day leaders and also, I think, true of the leaders of the past. Proverbs 22:28 says this way, Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. That's it. That's the whole proverb. Don't move it. <laughs> That's a foolish thing to do. It's disrespectful. Now, when you first read that, you might think, well, what does that even mean? Like, right? Why not? Uh, and what about all these debates, by the way, about, about Confederate statues in the South? Should we really never move a landmark? Is that the point? Well, no, not really. That, that's not exactly the point. This is not referring to landmarks that are known to honor wicked leaders. It is, though, really more of a statement on our view of the past and of history more generally. Uh, there is a kind of, of flippant disrespect and even disregard for the past uh, that is typical of a fool. Right? No one knew anything back then. All that stuff they fought about and that mattered to them, it just it doesn't matter at all. Now, on one hand, we should not have a rose-colored view of the past as if our leaders can do no wrong. Uh, but on the other hand, we should have a genuine respect for the people who built the society that we have inherited. Now, even if, much like future generations will almost certainly say of us, they also had many faults and even very serious blind spots. As a general rule, fools tend to think that everyone who lived before them was a fool. History has proven time and time again, wise leaders are essential to a functioning society. Proverbs eleven fourteen says this, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. We need good and wise leaders. And the opposite is, is true as well. When a society cannot find good or wise leaders, or when there is perpetual instability of leadership, it is almost certainly the sign of foolishness and sin in that society. Proverbs 28 in verse 2, when a land transgresses, it has many rulers. Everyone's at each other. Everyone's vying for power. But with a man of understanding and knowledge, it is, its stability will long continue. We will not have a stable society very long unless we can find wise leaders, and respect them. In fact, please listen very careful to this. In light of the current climate and landscape, foolish people with no fear of the Lord often turn to corrupt leaders to plead their case. And God tells us right here in his word, this will never end well for them. Proverbs 25, 19, trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. What does that mean? Well, our teeth and our feet, you've probably noticed, they're pretty essential, uh, right? We, we, we need them to do even the most basic things like, like eating and walking. Uh, and and um, that's how it can feel, at least, with trusting a treacherous leader in a difficult time. We've just, we need him. I, I'm sorry, I wish it wasn't the case, but, but listen, times are tough. We, we've got to eat, we've got to walk, right? What, what are we supposed to do only to find cracked tooth, broken leg, and here's the key, the more you use that, the worse it gets. This is how it ends every time. The moral character and integrity of leaders is incredibly important. 
There will never be a world crisis that changes this or makes it optional. Proverbs 20, verse 28, steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. Uh, to the best of our ability, we need to find and appoint wise leaders as a general rule. Even in some cases when it's really hard for us to do this, we should genuinely respect the leaders we have. This is one mark of wisdom in public life. Next, uh, we should approach the poor uh, with just compassion. Just compassion. By just, I don't mean only or merely. I mean compassion that rights wrongs. In every society, there are those who do well and have plenty and those who do not and have very little. Uh, in fact, Christ himself even tells his disciples, the poor will always be among you. And when the proverb speaks to larger societal issues, this is one of the dominant categories. It regularly refers to the rich and the poor. Now, poverty is a very complex situation uh, with many different layers to it, many different causes of it. Uh, for example, in our recent sermons on work and money, we saw that poverty can be the result of, of foolishness. It says a slack hand leads only to poverty. It's very true. Poverty is a bad thing that we should all aim to avoid at all costs. But when you zoom out to consider all that the Proverbs have to say about the poor, by far the primary concern of this book is for the just treatment of the poor. It is very easy to take advantage or entirely neglect poor and vulnerable people throughout history, many have. In fact, in Proverbs 13, 23, we are told that the fallow, which means basically just the fertile ground of the poor, would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. This is God's wisdom right here. Uh, this is a real thing. Societal injustices and the oppression of the poor is a very real thing that God's word, and particularly the Proverbs, condemn. It would be foolish for us to dismiss that or try to explain it away. Poor people are often poor, and, and they remain poor because they are given unfair disadvantages. They are oppressed. In chapter 14, verse 31, we read, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, uh, but he who is generous to the needy honors his maker. Poverty is not a problem we should ever scoff at or minimize as if, oh, they just sort of worked harder, you know, made some better decisions, you know. No. In fact, Proverbs 17, 5 says, whoever mocks the poor also insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Uh, we need to take the just treatment of the poor very seriously. Uh, this has always been a distinguishing mark of the Christian community. It is also not enough for us just to simply avoid slandering the poor or, or to have compassion, at least in theory, without really caring all that much or, or doing anything to right the wrongs that often lead to poverty. Pro, uh, Proverbs 21.13, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. You need to stop and consider this morning. Are our ears attentive to the cry of the poor? This really matters. Where we can, it's important for us to help. 
It's important for us to show real and tangible care for specific people, not simply to, to, to isolate ourselves from the poverty all around us as if we're, we're just above all of this. Now, these days there are some unhelpful ideas about poverty or even social power dynamics more generally that can really complicate this conversation, uh, whether it's the influence of extreme concepts like critical theory, which is a legal philosophy that equates all forms of inequality with injustice and oppression as if anyone who is rich is by definition an oppressor and anyone who is poor is by definition oppressed. There's no nuance to it. This is just reduced all the way down to simple power struggles. Whether it's that, or whether it's growing openness to more socialist forms of government, where a government is given godlike authority to control all of these dynamics across a society as if governments can never go corrupt. When the truth is, we've seen over and over again, in fact, they can, and when they do, it, particularly in these cases, it is very not pretty. We do need to be wise and discerning in the way we promote the just treatment of the poor. Uh, not everyone who wants justice for the oppressed is necessarily wise or honoring God. There are foolish ways to talk about and pursue this kind of wisdom, as there are with any kinds of wisdom, if you are to isolate it and separate it from the rest. It is certainly, for instance, not wise for us to heap all kinds of shame and guilt on people because they never do enough to solve what is an incredibly complex problem that, yes, they themselves, by God's grace, do not suffer from. That, that is foolish. We should avoid that. That may all be true, but we should also never cite these nuances in order to avoid taking this seriously or, or to swing so far to the other extreme as if poor people are never oppressed. Are you kidding me? This is the United States of America. No. Wise people care deeply and act decisively so that the poor can be treated with justice and compassion. That does not make them social justice warriors. It's a spiritual thing. It is rooted in a deep biblical conviction that we all share that all people are made in the image of God. In fact, uh, in all of this, I want you to notice there is a direct connection between the way that we treat the poor and the way we relate to God. Did you catch this? When we insult or mock the poor, did you notice, we insult and mock God. When we close our ears to the cry of the poor, God closes his ears to us. This is perfectly in line with Christ's teaching that those things that we do for the least of these in society, to help and to care for them, it is as if we do them unto the Lord. The opposite is true as well. If we harm the poor in any way, we will face the wrath of a mighty God. Chapter 22, verse 22 to 23 says, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their case and rob of life those who rob them. God takes this very seriously as part of our life together. And so what should this look like practically? Uh, how can we approach uh, the poor with just compassion. Well, it may look like serving uh, with safe families, which a number of our members do. Uh, it's a ministry that connects members of our church to parents and children in crisis times in the community, uh, most of whom are often either very poor or, or near poor. Uh, to learn more about this, you can talk with uh, Michelle Burris. There she is. Um, or the Durnells. Here's Carl. 
uh, and, or the Howells have served in this ministry. A number of other members uh, who have been a part of this uh, may also look like serving in the foster care system. Like Matt and Lauren Tenuto um, and Elizabeth Ecker, who I'm sure would be happy to talk with you about that. Uh, or considering adoption even as a plan to grow your family. Carrie and I would love to share more about our experience with that, although we're just kind of early in that process still. But the most vulnerable victims of poverty are often children who can do very little about it. But this may also uh, look like organizing or advocating in some way in the community through legislation or some other means, or charitable giving that meets practical needs you're particularly drawn to meeting, or serving in the community in any number of ways, particularly in the holiday season, it's not hard to find. Certainly within our church, it means that anyone who is in need should be well taken care of. As a member of our church, uh, if you have felt needs that you are unable to meet, I want, we want to talk with you about it. Talk with an elder. Talk with any other member. Things like this happen naturally even often in the life of our church. In Proverbs, I'm sorry, in Paul's words rather, in Galatians 6, he says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, which is an important thing to note. We, none of us are going to fix this, right? <laughs> Yet as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And for all of us, I think this can look very simply like investing in real, mutual friendships with people who have significantly less than we do, whether we meet them at our kids' schools, through other social engagements in the community. Let's learn people's names. Let's hear their stories. Let's invite them into our homes and our lives. Whatever we do, justice and compassion for the poor looks like lifting them up to a higher honored status and bringing ourselves low in humility uh, so that our shared humanity is on display. This sort of posture towards the poor is wise, and it also honors God, and here's why. This is the point of this whole section. Chapter 22, verse 2, the rich and the poor meet together. You might not expect it based on the world thinks of the rich and the poor, but the Lord is the maker of them all. Praise God. Let's approach the poor with just compassion. And finally, we should approach our neighbors with sincere care. And the Proverbs have uh, quite a bit to say about our neighbors. It's actually a very common theme throughout all of Scripture, and particularly in the Gospels even, in Jesus' own teaching. Uh, but when we talk about this biblical notion of a neighbor, it's important we define it far more broadly than just the people who live within walking distance of us. In fact, there's a story in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus famously taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then in response, somebody pipes up in the crowd and says, Lord, who is my neighbor? And this is one of those like eye roll moments in the gospel. Like, okay, buddy, you know. But the point of this comment is clearly that he's trying to wiggle out of Jesus' teaching. Uh, in other words, you know, Jesus, I'd like to define my neighbor as narrowly as possible so that whatever responsibilities and obligations I have towards my neighbor can be kept to a minimum. The point here is this. If your goal is to define neighbor as narrowly as you can so that people you dislike will never be your neighbor, <laughs> you have the entirely wrong instinct here. Uh, as Christians, we should be asking how many people can we love and know as neighbors. 
uh, even specifically across social and political and cultural and economic lines. It's the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. A neighbor is basically any fellow human we come across in contact with in the broader society. And in general, I want us to see we should approach our neighbors and all of the broader society with sincere care. We should care for them. Which is to say, it is wise for us to long for and to work towards our society going well. And it is incredibly foolish to just give up on our society at large and certainly to wish evil upon society at large. Proverbs 21.10, the soul of the wicked desires evil. And here's the result of that. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. Do our unbelieving neighbors find mercy in our eyes? Is it evident? Would it be evident to them that we love them, that we want good for them? Proverbs eleven twenty seven: whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Now, particularly among even some churches like ours, uh, churches that cherish the Bible, faithfully preach it, love the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially over the last five to six years, there have been some alarming shifts in attitudes toward the broader society. Uh, in particular, there's this growing general attitude of, of dismissiveness, sort of a haughty ambivalence, as if, ugh, our culture is just, it's just so wicked. I don't even have to care about it at all. And when I talk about it, I'm just going to bash and critique it with smug indignation. Uh, this kind of thinking, I'm convinced, is on the rise. In my view, it's deeply concerning. Listen, I have looked people in the eyes, and I'm talking about brothers and sisters I know and love, and they have told me that Donald Trump won every single state in the 2020 election, which has literally never happened in American history. They've told me that military is secretly trying to take over the government to save it from a group of elites. They have told me that there are actors standing in for many of our political leaders, most of whom are now dead. And, and, and I do not bring this up to tell a joke by any means today. I'm very serious. We need to hear this. I have been in the room to hear it myself. Some of you have heard it as well. And in these people's minds, it is very clear, they can justify these outlandish views without any shred of credibility because they are so convinced of how wicked our society is. They're so convinced. And the truth is, in most cases, I may even agree with many of their assessments of the culture. I, I, I think and hope I'm pretty clear about this. In a lot of my preaching, there's a lot of things that are not great going on in the world. We need to be delivered from this present evil age. Praise God. But here's the problem. That conviction right there that our world is wicked drives every other belief they have. It is the center of their life often and their mind. And everything else is connected to it. And therefore... Many give in instant credibility to any theory or piece of information that affirms it. It's a serious problem. Uh, it could become even more serious in, in the coming years. But more than that, it's also good old-fashioned textbook foolishness. Proverbs 14, 15 to 16. The simple believes everything. If it sounds plausible to them, they go with it. But the prudent gives thought to his steps. 
One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Now, without question, within the last five to six years, there have also been some alarming developments in our society, which, of course, we cannot just go along with or support, particularly in the area of of gender and marriage and sexuality and the many movements and organizations that promote a number of anti-biblical worldviews. But in the name of exposing these errors, far too many have justified foolish talk and attitudes toward, frankly, our neighbors. Our neighbors. As if, you know what, this is more important. I need to speak up on all these divisive issues all the time in the most antagonistic ways because people need to know the truth. And it is up to me to convince all of them. And if in the meantime I completely ruin my relationship with anyone who stands in my way or questions me, well, so be it. Bring it on. That is the definition of a scoffer in the Proverbs. And it's worth repeating, the soul of the wicked desires evil. They want it. They say, bring it on. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. Church, if we do not love and sincerely care for real people with all kinds of troubling views and and lifestyles, then first we should not try to convince ourselves that we are Christ-like or, for that matter, that we are wise. The truth is, we can be very right about a long list of biblical issues and also complete fools. It's also not enough to silently tolerate this kind of thing from our brothers and sisters in Christ or even to participate in it ourselves and then just sort of laugh it off. Oh, they're just being bold. You know, they're just trying to get everybody's attention. You know, they don't don't really mean those harsh, vindictive things they say. Proverbs 26, 18 to 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death. How do you throw death? Is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. You see this? This kind of world-hating arrogance is foolish. Our relationship to the world, it's very complicated. It's true. Our world is deeply sinful. We are in need of being delivered from it. We are, by God's grace, being delivered from it. We are called to live holy lives that are distinct, but this part is not complicated. Wise people who fear the Lord are not characterized by harsh, grumpy, and vindictive attitudes toward the broader society, period. They're just not. They're marked instead by a sincere care for their neighbor and for all of society. And this does not make them soft. (laughs) This does not make them naive. It makes them wise. On a lighter note, um, to be sincere also means uh, we need to be self-aware and we need to be considerate in the way we interact. This may sound a little silly, but as a general rule, we should just not do things that annoy people. (laughs) This is God's wisdom. For example, chapter 27, verse 14 of Proverbs, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. Okay, so listen, God says so. It's right here in your Bible. Do not mow your lawn at 7 a.m. Don't do that. Stop it. Also says in chapter 25, 17, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house lest he have his fill of you and hate you. 
Uh, don't spend too much time next door, my friends. Care for your neighbor, yes. Get to know him, but read the room a little bit, right? <laughs> Give him space. Don't overstay your welcome. Uh, approaching our neighbors with sincerity and sincere care also means not smothering them with all kinds of empty praise, or as some might say, don't blow smoke. It's never wise. Chapter 29, verse 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. In other words, don't go around saying all kinds of flattering things in order to kiss up to your neighbors and convince them, oh, I like totally get you and I'm like really, really cool and stuff. Like don't go above and beyond to make sure that every neighbor knows how much you love and care for them in a way that's really ultimately more about you than about anyone else, right? It's not sincere. Let's be present. Let's be ourselves. And let's sincerely care for all of our neighbors and for society in general. Now, maybe at this point, you're wondering, where is Christ in all of this? I, I hear you, what you're saying, Danny, but what does all this have to do with the gospel? It's a great question. And the answer is quite a bit. In one sense, the gospel is the good news that Jesus reigns over all creation, all societies. These days in particular, he reigns over a new kind of heavenly society, namely his church. As we've seen in our recent series through Galatians, those of us who are in Christ are being delivered out of this present evil age. We are being delivered from the society we're called to engage in as salt and light. We've been gathered together into a new kind of spiritual family. In other words, God is using the gospel to gather us together into a new kind of almost alternative society, if you will. A covenant community where our public life together is marked by this kind of wisdom. Where we do genuinely respect our leaders and, and they love and respect us. We do show compassion and, and set things right for our members who are in need. And together, we also show sincere care and concern for the world around us. Our life together should be a picture, a foretaste of what societies should look like. And even of how the world will work someday when Christ returns to establish his kingdom because Christ is the ultimate king of all creation who deserves all of our respect and admiration. As Peter tells us, he of all people, Jesus Christ, God's son in the flesh, became poor so that we might be made rich. And he has certainly shown us what it means to love our neighbor as ourself, even when it comes at great cost to ourselves. Church, at times, that looks like staring society in the face and losing. Losing. In humiliating ways, even. Stripped naked. Beaten. Hung on a cross. This is the kind of humility we need to be wise with our public lives. But the truth is, we don't have that kind of humility or wisdom in and of ourselves. None of us do. We, we will never live this way unless we repent of our sins, unless we trust in the Lord Jesus alone, and we find all of the treasures of this wisdom in him.